0: Welcome to the Upper 90 Football Podcast, providing American coverage and opinions on all things football. I'm Garrett Post.
1: And I'm Justin Ruderman.
0: And this week, Justin, we have a bit of a shorter episode, not quite as much to talk about. But we can start with the most important action of the week. And that is, of course, the remaining World Cup qualifying playoffs, as we discussed last week. And we can start, Justin, with the United Arab Emirates taking on Australia the winner of which would face Peru in the final for a spot at Qatar 2022. And it was the Aussies who would take home the victory and then again against Peru in dramatic fashion.
1: Absolutely, Garrett, as you say, they beat the UAE 2-1, to one, but it was the Peru game, uh, which had all the drama, even though it was a nil-nil game, a bit boring through 90 minutes, even through 120 minutes, honestly, but it was in penalties when Andrew Redmayne came on in place of Maddie Ryan to, you know, be the penalty stopper for Australia. We've seen uh, clubs and countries do this and it hasn't worked out well uh, in the past very often, (laughs) Chelsea, but it worked out very well for Australia. Uh, They went through five, four on penalties with Redmayne making not one, but two saves, including the final save to send them to the World cup. What drama. Yeah, Justin, you took the word straight out of my
0: mouth. It just makes me think of Tuchel and Kepa and Mendy and how I slated him for it. And then, you know, obviously they didn't do it the second time around and still lost to Liverpool on pens, but yeah, Andrew Redmayne, the Sydney FC number one, which is funnily enough, our favorite team in Australia, but yeah. What a performance from him. And some of his antics were hilarious. Just dancing on the line, practically doing everything he possibly could to distract the takers. Uh, and you know, it, it worked out and Australia will be clinching their spot at Qatar 2022 in the world cup this November.
1: Absolutely. Right. And, and heartbreak for Peru uh, who had an incredible run to get here. It needs to be recognized, but you know, I really feel like Australia actually deserved to win this game. I know it was a little bit uh, of back and forth, you know, with Australia doing a little bit better in the first half. Peru came out in the second half uh, being a little bit more attacking Uh, with Australia on the back foot. You know, they're a little bit deeper of a team than Australia uh, is. So you thought that maybe in extra time they would be able to push further. But at the end of uh, regular time, it was Australia who I really thought might get that last gasp winner in extra time there was really nothing doing I mean only three shots on target during the entire match uh none of those were in the first half of course with I mean the first half really felt like 90 minutes to me it felt so long and just dragged on uh but not that it was uh you know extremely exciting I just felt that Australia were the better side throughout well, I mean, the biggest chance of the game, though, fell to Peru, or I think it was
0: Lapadula who hit the post in the first yep. half of extra time from a header. Um, and, and, you know, Peru for the first maybe five minutes of extra time were really knocking on the door. But after that, you know, the fatigue really set in and, and your manager, Steve Trundolo said on the broadcast, you know, you can tell by the second half of extra time that all the real functioning of these players has gone. They're absolutely exhausted. And, you know, a lot of times we see when games go to extra time, especially recently, there's been so many games where they go to extra time and you just know they're going to go to penalties and that's what happened. But narrow margins, narrow margins, this is a a game of inches and Australia get over the line by an inch. And then Justin, we have one more spot up for grabs.
1: Yeah, we do. Absolutely. And uh, you know, this this Australia-Peru game basically became our game of the week because that uh, France-Croatia game that was going to be our game of the week wasn't even televised in the United States, which we weren't aware of. We expected Fox Sports to uh, televise it. Instead, they televised this Australia-Peru game, understandably. Um, but the, the one game that is left is tomorrow or today as it's being released. It is Costa Rica against New Zealand, again in Qatar, for the final spot in the Qatar 2022 World Cup. Uh, That will be our game of the week for next week. We will analyze it uh, heavily as we are, you know, uh, looking at this Australia game. Just looking at it again, Garrett, because there were only two yellow cards in this entire match in 120 minutes, which lends to why I think it was a little bit more boring of a game than a lot of people expected because, you know, you expect a lot of fight. When, it, when it's for the world cup and i'm not saying that there wasn't fight obviously we're just talking about how the players were exhausted but two yellow cards i would expect more than that and i would and i do expect more than that in the costa rica new zealand game uh which by the way i will give my prediction for right now i, I i'm gonna say costa rica goes through um i think you know they're both good teams and it would be nice to see new zealand get get in but Costa Rica is more deserving, in my opinion, and a deeper, more um, thorough team. I mean,
0: this game just has Kalor Navas masterclass written all over it, though, doesn't it? Like, yeah. he always shows up in big games and makes incredible saves. He did it against the U.S. during World Cup qualifying. He was unreal. Um, and so I really see New Zealand struggling to, to find a way past him because um, he always steps up for
1: Costa Rica and so I see them going through. Absolutely, Garrett. And then the other massive news in World Cup qualifying this week was not even a game, but it was uh, a protest from Chile to FIFA. They they said that Ecuador were fielding an ineligible player in Brian, Byron Castillo. Uh, they claimed that he had false documents for not only his age, but his nationality, and they wanted – Their win uh, that Ecuador got against Chile to be overturned, which would put Chile into the World Cup Uh, instead of Ecuador. A lot of people, of course, saying, why not Colombia? Well, because specifically those points would have been won by Chile uh, and then that would put them into the World Cup. That protest was rejected by FIFA and Ecuador maintains their place in the World Cup. So some wild controversy here.
0: Yeah. And, and I've seen some good humor on Twitter about this. Daniel Edwards tweeted breaking chili claim that Edrew Redmayne was in fact born in Colombia
1: and request Australia's place in the world cup. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Well, I, all the jokes could be made about it, but it's, it's has to be talked about because uh, you know, sometimes in, in, not only South America, but in, in, in comaball not just in comaball but also in CONCACAF, it seems that sometimes these things will be gotten away with. Uh, and, and even in AFCON as well, different around the world, it's happened a lot, but it seems that uh, FIFA doesn't really care and they're going to worry about the results on the field.
0: Yeah, I mean, on, I'm honestly surprised this isn't something going on in, in Concacaf, or, at th- or that this story isn't from Concacaf,
1: because this is a very Concacaf thing for someone to try. Right, I, but I think it's, I think it's, you know, a thing that is happening a lot around the world, and we focus a lot on UEFA, which is, you know, a, a very well-run organization. Uh, besides, besides, you know, uh, certain aspects, but as far as you know, keeping up with documents and keeping up with regulations, I think it's pretty good or or as good as we have in the world. And so I think that when we focus on UEFA a lot, we forget that the rest of the world tries to pull a lot of this stuff uh, very often. Uh, And so, yeah, as you say, I would have expected it to be from CONCACAF as well, but uh, maybe that's just our bias seeing all all the CONCACAF wildness that happens on a regular basis. And speaking of CONCACAF, Justin, that
0: can be our segue into the United States, who played this week against Granada in the Nations League. And what a performance from one man in
1: particular, Jesus Ferreira. Yeah, he scored four goals. But the question is, was it an incredible performance? I mean, he's never going to have as many chances as he had against Granada. And yes, he should bury them as he did. But... He also, you know, had other chances that he didn't score and he's just, he just had a ridiculous uh, amount of chances. I mean, 25 shots for the team and it was impressive, Uh, you know, his teammate Paul Areola getting the other goal, but did he have a particularly good game either? No, to me, if you're scoring four goals, you have to be man of the match. And the fact that he's not man of the match, because I think, you know, unanimously it was Luca De La Torre uh, in this game, but if you're not made a match scoring four goals, it tells me that maybe it wasn't the most incredible performance. That's a really interesting take.
0: Um, and it also kind of says something that it took the U S until the 43rd minute to find the breakthrough in this game. And then the floodgates open from there, but Yeah, no, I I get your point. I see that. But at the same time, some of the chances he did score were not amazing. Like that finish from the corner, I believe, for the hat trick was spectacular into the top right corner. So I understand what you're saying. I personally would still I mean, you just can't you can't score four goals and not be man of the match. So as much as Luca De La Torre, you know, you can say stole the show or was the star. I'd still have to give it to Ferreira.
1: Oh yeah, D- that that to me isn't even up for debate. He Freda is not man of the match for me. The, the way that Luka Delatore played, and you know, speaking of which, because he is the the news broke that he is going to leave Heracles this uh this transfer window this summer, and he has interest throughout Europe, including the Netherlands, Germany, and France. I mean, this is a move that to me has to happen. He has been uh, incredible both for club and country at every opportunity that he's been given, and he needs to get that step up. Uh, I think that this will be perfect for him. And I hope that it's a a big step up because I think that he is prepared for it. But the question to me is where does he go? Because there's just so many options for him. Yeah. I mean, I
0: think we're both really high on De La Torre and, and I agree it needs to be a big step up and it needs some needs to be somewhere he can really prove himself because I think, At the moment, he is still kind of on the outside looking in into getting into the U.S.'s starting 11 in the World Cup. And obviously performances like this will help his case. But I agree. It needs to be somewhere that he's playing, you know, a vast majority of minutes, but also, you know, not a lower division club where he can't really or not lower division, but, you know, a team fighting against relegation where he can't really mm. show off his full skill set right because you know him in a low block that that's not quite the fit we'd be looking for so you know in the Premier League, for example, I don't think he'll end up going to the Prem, but I could see him going, you know, playing for a team like Palace or something, you know, who have, you know, some really creative, good attacking players, mm. and he could be the link up between their defense in which they have good ball carriers such as Mark Gahey, and then, you know, their creative skilled players like Olise and Ebreche So I, I just think a, a mid-table level club like that somewhere in Europe where he can get a lot of minutes, you know, won't be riding the bench in, in a, for a Champions League team or whatnot can get a lot of minutes, and also is playing in a system that that suits what he can bring to a, to a side, I think that would be a really good step up for him. And it's honestly what he needs if he wants to kind of displace um, one of the current midfielders in Greg Burhalter's preferred 11.
1: Yeah, I, I think that that's absolutely true. I think that the mid table is undoubtedly where he needs to go i think the question just becomes what country uh because you know netherlands germany france the three that have been reported but there's there's more interest throughout europe in in different countries so it could really be anywhere that's why it's so open-ended right now but to me if he goes to netherlands that's not a high enough level for me uh unless he's you know at a top, top club, Ajax, it's not, it's not going to happen. I don't think that that's really where you prove yourself. France, sure, he would do well, undoubtedly, in my opinion, but is Ligue 1 really that impressive if you, if you tear it apart as a midfielder, if you, you know, I don't know, because there's just so much space in midfield in France. It's a slow game. It's open. I think that it's a relatively, uh, less impressive, and that's why I think Germany is the spot for him. If he goes to a mid-table club there—Mainz, Hoffenheim, Gladbach, Frankfurt, Wolfsburg—something like this, he would have the ability to show off while being in a, a competitive league that others uh, around the around the Europe and around the world will take notice of. Yeah,
0: I'm totally on the same page as you, and, and you know we also have a history of you know american players being successful in the bundesliga a lot quite recently so um you know if it, if it ain't broke don't fix it so yeah I, I think germany's also the best spot
1: for him absolutely and then moving from usmnt national team to us in the club level we can look at mls there were a few games you know we're still on the international break of course but the mls uh will will throw in a few games for us to keep us entertained Uh, We talked a lot about Charlotte last week, obviously sacking their manager and, you know, a big rebuild, it seems, already early on in the front office of Charlotte. Uh, But they were able to find a big win at home against New York Red Bulls, who have been the best away team in the MLS this season. But Charlotte handled their business 2-0. Ben Bender in stoppage time of the first half, Derek Jones stoppage time of the second half uh, to win that one for Charlotte.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting. It's just like the discussion we had about them last week, this kind of dysfunction within the club and sacking the manager because a player doesn't like him and whatnot. This is all stuff you'd expect from a team that's struggling from a team, you know, that it can't, it hasn't established themselves or or whatnot. And it makes sense for like an expansion franchise, I guess that's where you'd be most likely to see it. But then you look at the table and you're like, wait. They're in sixth right now. They just beat, as you said, the best away team in the entire league. And they're, you know, in a playoff spot in their first season, which unless you're LAFC really is something that most expansion franchises have really struggled to do in this league. So it's just so interesting that, you know, kind of the performance on the pitch and everything going on off the pitch are in complete contrast.
1: Yeah, it's absolutely right. And that's why I was so surprised to see the stuff that's been happening in Charlotte recently, because uh, I was happy that, uh, you know, the, uh, an expansion franchise is playing well early on. As you say, we've seen basically LAFC and Atlanta be the only ones to really hit the ground running. Um, but it, all the expansion teams have started to settle into the league, it seems. And, you know, Inter-Miami, we saw com- completely disastrous front office. And that has been why they have not been able to settle in like the rest of the teams uh, have, and if Charlotte has a disastrous front office as well, then they're not going to be able to settle in either. And so that's what really worries me because I thought that they were, uh, especially with that fan base, you know setting an MLS record attendance in their first game, all of these big moments. But if your front office can't handle uh, the the paperwork, then it ain't gonna work out.
0: Yeah, it, you know, it's likely that their current position is just kind of paper over the cracks and that eventually, you know, the flaw, which is their organization is going to be exposed. I mean, if they keep winning, then they keep winning. But, you know, I think we both agree that the way that they're doing things over there is not ideal.
1: Absolutely Garrett. And then it was your club playing to a nil nil draw at the brand new Geodas park in Nashville. Uh, You know, I thought that Nashville were going to make the breakthrough in the first half. They, had less possession and the stats overall are going to look pretty similar by the end of the game but to me nashville had the better chances and needed to find a way to finish them off Um, not a bad result to me for for san jose coming out of nashville with a point but it could have gone either way couldn't it
0: yeah i mean i think a draw is fair personally Um, we know that the quakes like to have a lot of possession so I don't always look at, oh, we had more possession. That means we, you know, had had the better performance or played, you know, deserved the win. Um, you know, obviously, I would have preferred if there were a few goals in a, in a draw, <laughs> because this one, you know, was a bit stale by the end of it, for sure. But, you know, both teams with six shots on target, uh, Nashville with three more shots in general. Yeah, I, I think a draw is fair. Um, and, and I would have definitely taken a point if you had offered it to me going into this game. So yeah, I'm, I'm not too displeased with the performance and it's always good to get clean sheets because that's something that the quakes have mightily struggled with for years and years now. Um, and so going on the road to a playoff team
1: and, and, and getting a point, I can't complain. Fair enough. And then the last MLS game of the week was sporting Kansas city hosting new England at children's mercy park uh, it was New England getting off to the lead in the 30th minute with Gustavo Bo. And then in the second half, Oriol Roussel got sent off for Sporting Kansas City. And you thought that might be it. Johnny Russell didn't. He scored an absolute banger of a free kick to bring Sporting Kansas City level. But it wasn't enough as Emmanuel Boateng late, late on in the 87th minute, found the winner for New England. Uh, spoiling the party at children's mercy park i just feel bad for johnny russell i mean he's been struggling a little bit this season finally starting to find form bangs in this free kick but it's not enough because your teammate gets sent off and your team can't hold on
0: yeah i mean that was a world-class finish just unbelievable free kick into the top right corner but i mean kansas city's you know, I would say demise has been one of the biggest stories in the MLS this year. And I really don't see that many people talking about it because this is a team I picked to be what second in the West, third in the West, um, and they're rock bottom right now with an extra game played over the quakes and the timbers. So this is kind of shocking how bad they've been this season. And, and this was, you know, this self-destruction almost was kind of the perfect encapsulation of that because, you know, they, they, uh they were down a goal but um at home you know you just can't be getting a man sent off at the beginning of the second half and and then they equalize and it's like okay maybe they can hold on even though they're down a man and then just you know a, a heartbreaking late winner from Emma Boateng the former Carson player um so yeah I'm in mean, Kansas City I don't know what they're gonna do is Peter Vermees on the hot seat I think he should be um, yeah, that's definitely going to be something we're gonna have to look at because it's almost unbelievable how bad they've been this year.
1: Yeah. To me, it's not so unbelievable. And to me, uh, no hot seat at all because it's, it's injuries. That's the big thing to me. I mean, your Shaloi has been out for most of the season was their best player last season. One of the best players in the MLS last season, uh, they missing their, their two, uh, other DPS besides Johnny Russell, Gadi Kinda is out. Pulido's been out the entire year. That's where they're. I mean, when you, without Shaloi, without Pulido, you're lacking a ton of goal scoring threat. Kinda, you're lacking your your defensive solidity there. Uh, I just think that that's a, a lot of the problem uh, that Sporting Kansas City are facing. So I think when they if if and when they can become healthy, uh, they'll turn things around and make the playoffs.
0: Wow. I uh, See, like, I agree that, you know, that's the main factor, but I don't know if they'll be able to do enough to turn it all the way around because they're in quite a hole at this point. And I also think, Justin, that the loss of Ilya Sanchez is a big part of this as well. You know, obviously going to your club, LAFC, and has, you know, been a little bit up and down this season, but you know, we saw this with, a, a you know, just dumb second yellow from Rosell in, in the midfield and Roger Espinosa, who's not getting any younger, that's for sure, that I, I think their midfield is also lacking, despite the fact that you do say, you know, yeah, they're they're missing uh, attackers and, and that is a big problem for sure. But, you know, I, I think it's kind of a compounding of, of multiple things. Um, and, and, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, they turn around and get it, get up in the playoff conversation but with the competition in the league at the moment I'm I'm not sure. I guess that 7th spot is definitely still up for grabs, but you've got three teams tied on 18 points right now um who who will all be fighting for that and I think it's a real big ask at this point for Sporting Kansas City having played the most games in the entire league uh to to find their way into the playoffs.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, Elias Sanchez is a big loss. He's been the best sixth in the league this season undoubtedly, but that's what Kinda is brought in to do is to replace him. And when you're, when he's out, I mean, yeah, you're going to struggle. Uh, so that, that's where I'm coming from. I think that, yeah, it's, it's definitely going to be a fight, no doubt, but sporting Kansas city, just the way that Seattle, the, the, the difficulty becomes for me is that Seattle, you know, are going to make a run Portland, you know, are going to make a run. Does that then leave room for sporting Kansas city to also make a run? That's the issue for me because some of these teams are going to get knocked out. RSL are, are going to fall off to me. There's no way they can keep this up. Uh, Houston, I don't think are making the playoffs even with Herrera. So I think that, yeah, that's that's the issue to me is how many spots are you going to be able to push out?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, you're right about Seattle. I don't know about Portland, man. I, I I'm not convinced by them whatsoever. This is the lowest points total they've ever had through 15 games in an MLS season. And, and I just am not sure that, they're going to be able to turn it around and get up there. I think Seattle obviously have a much better chance. I think even Colorado might might have a better chance than uh, Portland at this point. Um, and I could see RSL falling off for sure. I don't think they're going to finish third, but all the way out of the playoffs, not quite sure on, on that one.
1: Yeah, it's definitely going to be interesting uh, getting laid on, but also, you know, looking at a team that is doing really well that might fall off because they've now lost their head coach. Ronnie Dyla has moved to Standard liege in Belgium uh, from, from New York City. So that's a big loss for them, right? I mean, defending MLS Cup champions, uh, leading in the Eastern Conference on 26 points with a game in hand on ev- basically everybody uh, all the way down to ninth place. So how big of a loss is this for New York city? I mean, I think it's, it's huge.
0: Um, You know, obviously they've managed to hold on to Castellanos as of now, and we'll see, you know, if he ends up staying the rest of the season, honestly, I'd be a little bit surprised, but it's not that often you see managers getting picked out of MLS. Obviously there's a lot of talent here that clubs in Europe have jumped on and have had some real good success with. Um, But you know, the fact that you have a manager getting picked out shows you just, how good he is and how good he's been for New York city, obviously making that run winning MLS cup and now being arguably the best team in the league other than LAFC this season. So yeah, I, I think it's going to be a big loss for them. Um, and and I could definitely see Philadelphia taking advantage of it. I still think New York will be, you know, one of the better teams in the league when all is said and done, I still think they'll have a good chance in the playoffs, but for sure that this is a big loss for them and, and getting the replacement right is going to be big if they want to have any chance of defending their title.
1: Yeah. I think that that's, well, you brought up the first question for me, and that is about Castellanos. Uh, If this affects whether they keep Castellanos, that's very, very big. Uh, I think it probably makes it a little bit more likely they lose him, uh, which obviously is going to hinder their chances of, of winning any type of silverware. But if they are able to keep Castellanos, I think that it might not be as bad as everyone thinks. Now, obviously, it's tough. Ronnie Dial is a very good coach and has been very good for New York City in his time there. But their interim coach, Nick Cushing, who is in the running for sure to be their permanent coach, uh, has been with New York City for a, about a year now. But he came from Manchester City, so within within you know the city. Uh, System. He came from the Manchester City women in which he was there from 2013 to 2020 uh, as their head manager and brought them from, you know, really not being able to win anything to one of the best women's teams, uh, not only in England, but in the world. And so that to me shows that he has the pedigree uh, to, to find a way to get this New York City team playing well. Uh, and I don't think it's going to be, you know, particularly difficult because they're already playing well. So in that respect, I think it might not be as bad as everyone thinks, but still definitely a loss.
0: Yeah, you bring up some really good points there, Justin. And speaking of city, actually, we, we can jump across the pond now because we got the PFA Player of the Year and Young Player of the Year and Team of the Year announcements this week. And there was a City player who did end up getting an award, but probably not the one everybody expected. I mean, you would have expected Phil Foden to win Young Player of the Year for the second year in a row. But I I think what you're going to have more of a problem with and what I want to hear your take on is... Kevin De Bruyne not winning player of the year. Like you predicted instead it was of course, Mohamed Salah who won both the golden boot tied with Youngman son and the playmaker award. Um, And he is the one who gets voted by the players to be player of the year. Uh, What's your take?
1: Yeah, obviously Foden deserves young player of the year. Uh, Mount was great this season. Don't get me wrong. I put him in my team of the year, which, you know, got enough uh, hate, but, Uh, Yeah, Foden deserves it. And if you want to argue, argue with the wall, but Salah, to me (laughs) does not deserve player of the year. He was, in my opinion, the third best player in the league this season. So I don't get how he wins player of the year. I understand he won golden boot and playmaker award. He was fantastic. But to me, It matters most the second half of the year. And Salah was great in the first half of the year. So when you're valuing them uh, as the first half being, you know, more important or even equally as important, it doesn't make sense to me because he fell off since AFCON and, you know, wasn't able to win the, the league for Liverpool, wasn't able to win the Champions League for Liverpool. Even after all that talk before the Champions League final, he didn't show up at all. And so I think that obviously, you know, that's not necessarily part of player of the year, but it lends to my argument of he has fallen off and that second half of the year hasn't been what we have expected beyond that. Uh, obviously De Bruyne was great in the second half of the year, but if we're not going to pick De Bruyne, that's fine with me. Pick hyong son, because to yep. me, he's been absolutely unbelievable and his, uh overperformance of XG, especially in comparison to Salah, who has underperformed his XG. But Son is b- scoring as many goals with way fewer penalties and way less XG than Mohamed Salah. I believe he's like seven or eight goals above his expected goals this season, while Salah is one or two under. It's a massive difference. Uh, and Son, who, by the way, his dad came out with a quote today uh, saying something to the effect of he needs to play at a top club. Uh, in order to be a world class player, I don't know where this comes from, but Hyungmin Son is a world class player, and we need to stop acting like he's not.
0: No, and and I could go on a rant for hours about how him not being included in the PFA Team of the Year is an absolute disgrace and, and just a joke. I, I just don't understand it whatsoever. Um, in terms of Player of the Year, you know what I think is more impressive than you know the Golden Boot, even for Salah is. You know, that, that playmaker award is quite impressive, especially when you have players like Kevin De Bruyne in the league and also his teammate Trent, you know, only beat him by one assist, but you know, we know De Bruyne went more into the goal scoring um, role this season, but you know, Salah, as you said, underperformed his XG um, or yeah, he underperformed his his XG um, and he also underperformed his expected assists meaning that he should have had more assists than he did his teammates were not as clinical as they should have been and i think that's relatively impressive um you know salah's non-penalty xg is the 99th percentile so yeah he better be scoring a lot of goals but the fact that you know he he can also create as many as he had you know it, it, it makes sense i guess that he that he won the award um, you know, it's what I predicted if you remember Justin, but yep. you know, it's also not who I would have given it to because, you know, I talked about this, uh, in our episode of, a few weeks ago about who my player of the year was, and it was Youngman's son, because what he did for a team that isn't literally, you know, just built to be destroying these lower teams, um, and just giving Salah chance after chance. Cause that's what Liverpool do, right? They literally didn't beat a single top four team in the league or the cup this season, I believe. Um, and so that's why I had son. Um, and the fact that he is not in that team of the year and, and that you have, you know, Mane is a great player and all, and Ronaldo is a great player and all, but there's no chance that either of them deserve to be in that team over your son, not a chance in the world.
1: Yeah. To me, Mane had an incredible season. I don't complain about that, but Ronaldo, she's just making it because of his name, uh, in my opinion, I don't understand that. And then the other one in the team of the year that made absolutely no sense was Thiago Alcantara, who, why is he in there over Rodri? Explain that to me. Literally somebody explain because Rodri is by far the best center defensive mid in the league, by far the best six in the league. He's the, He's been the best six in the world this season. He's been absolutely flawless for Manchester City. Uh, and Thiago... I don't even know, man. He's at this point has to be the most overrated player in the league because he is look, he's a good player and all, but 12 months ago, everyone was calling him a flop. So I don't know how he went from a flop to team of the season in a year.
0: Yeah. Well, I can tell you why he got included, Justin. And all you have to do is go listen to that quote from Pep Guardiola a few weeks ago. (laughs) right? Um, I mean, I mean, Tiago's had a, a really good bounce back year. Like you know, last season I I just thought he I thought I thought he was a flop. I totally agreed, and and this year he has been very good, and I won't deny that. But I mean, he he scored that one crazy volley, and you know that gets him in Team of the Year. Meanwhile, Rodri's scoring four absolute worldies a season at the moment. Uh, no, you're right. The fact that Rodri's not in this is a ridiculous miss. Um, and and I don't know how that happened, but. You know, yeah. as I said, Pep Guardiola put it out there. He, he said it perfectly. You know, it's Liverpool.
1: That's why he's in the team of the year. No, seriously, though, because it's not even a joke at this point. There are six Liverpool players in this team of the season. There are three Man City players in the team of the season. Yet Jur- Jurgen Klopp wins manager of the season, finishing second. How if if Pep has with worse players and he's winning? How is he not the manager? Of how are you a better manager with better players doing worse? Explain. I can't. There, there's no explanation. The English media makes no sense.
0: Yeah, <sighs> I, I mean, no, it does make sense, right? Because we because we know exactly why it's happening. So. It makes perfect sense. And I I would be lying if I said I'm surprised. Am I outraged? Yeah. But am I surprised?
1: Absolutely not. You know what does make perfect sense, though, is that the Premier League clubs have instituted a £30 away ticket cap for this upcoming season, which is uh, very refreshing in modern football that is all about money and making the most profit every team now has a cap of 30 pounds for an away ticket for the each, uh, game in this Premier league season. I mean, that's just great news, isn't it?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love this. It's great. Um, you know, obviously home ticket prices have been rising and rising, especially with, you know, new stadiums and whatnot, like, like Tottenham, their ticket prices are very high at the moment, but, you know, these are fans, especially, um, due to the competition, of getting away tickets is like, you have to be one of the most dedicated fans to get in a ticket, I get a ticket to an away game. Right. And then you're spending all the money on the coach and whatnot. Like I totally agree with this. You should not have to pay an arm and a leg for an away ticket when you're, you've already given up your liver and your spleen to make, a, you know, <laughs> especially when it's, when it's, you know, Brighton going to play Newcastle or something, for example, and this is an eight hour drive, you know, I totally agree with this. I
1: think it's great. Um, So yeah, great news. Yeah. Fantastic news. It's just something we love to see. Uh, And then continuing in the premier league, but with transfers now we had a massive one go down. Didn't we? Darwin Nunez to Liverpool, Gary, let me hear it. So it's a good acquisition.
0: Like there's no denying that as I said last week, Roberto Firmino has passed it. They needed someone to replace him. Diogo Jota is a good utility player, but is he a starting number nine for, you know, a team that wants to be the best in the world? No, he's just not quite at that level. Right. So obviously Liverpool think that Darwin Nunez has the potential to do that scored a lot of goals in Portugal, but for me, it's, it's just quite simply an overspend. I mean, with add-ons, which, you know, not all of them will be achieved, but 80 million euros plus 20 million euros in potential add-ons. So this is up to a hundred million euros for a player who has only done it in the Portuguese league, which is not a top five league in Europe uh, and actually underperformed his XG. I believe this season, he, he missed a lot of chances as well. Um, and, and, you know, I'm not going to deny that it's you know, it's a good acquisition. It will improve their team, I believe, maybe not as much this season, but in the years to come, you know, it's Liverpool. They rarely ever get these signings wrong. So I think Darwin Nunez will be a very good signing for them. But the fact that City paid pretty much half of what Liverpool might end up paying for Nunez for Erling Holland, who has been scoring more goals in a better league for longer, you know, that for me, it just shows that that Holland signing is one of the best signings I've seen in a very long time considering how cheap he was when you have players like Darwin Nunez going for almost double.
1: Yeah. And it's a completely fair comparison when you're talking about the transfer uh, and the cost of it. What I hate is that people are trying to compare these two on the field. They're nowhere near each other on the field. Erling Holland is a generational talent. Darwin Nunez is a player that would have, if you would have compared him to Erling Holland two weeks ago, you would have been laughed out of the room, but now that Liverpool is signing him, oh, now it makes sense to compare them. No, this comparison makes absolutely no sense. And yes, I agree with what you're saying, Garrett. It's going to work out in the end, but for this to be a record signing for Liverpool, it, it's an overspend. For sure, it's an overspend, which is something that we never say about Liverpool, and that's why it's uh, the most shocking to me.
0: Yeah. I mean, they, they're bringing him in to do one job and that's put the ball in the back of the net. And, and I think he's going to do it, but you know, Holland is so far, so far better in terms of just being a more complete player, a more complete attacker. I mean, we're talking about Darwin Nunez playing in the Portuguese league, you know, averaging, Oh, how many assists per 90, zero, how many expected assists per 90.06. Meanwhile, Holland playing in a better league for a team you know, that's compared to the rest of the league. You know, both of these teams, Benfica and Dortmund are towards the top of the table, right? Meanwhile, Holland is getting 0.34 assists per 90. That's 96th percentile in all of the top five leagues in Europe. I mean, he's just a more complete player. He's a more complete striker. He has a higher ceiling and he will be better immediately as well. It will take Darwin Nunez more time to settle in for sure than Holland. So, you know, as much as we do have to compare it because it's, you know, City signing a number nine and Liverpool signing a number nine who are arguably the two best teams in Europe, in the world, you know, unde- undebatably top three, right? I think you have to put Madrid in there after what they did this season, but, you know, we have to compare it for that reason, right? They're both signing strikers for the future. Both of them need strikers in the future, but, I mean, you can't compare these two as as players and the fact that, Nunez is being signed for pretty much double what Holland was it should be the other way around
1: it absolutely should be and make the comparisons all you want but Erling Holland wins every single comparison in basically every single category uh so that's why it's just ridiculous to me but the other thing we talked about uh many to Madrid last week but we didn't have the price yet. It hadn't come out. Now we know it's over a hundred million euros. So another massive signing. I mean, this has to be an overspend too.
0: Yeah, I I think so. Um, I, I still think it's kind of similar to Darwin. I think he'll still be a fantastic player. And I think, as I said last week, that a midfield of Valverde, Chuameni, and Kamavinga will be extremely successful for Real Madrid. You know, they have an amazing world-class, one of the best midfield threes, if not the best midfield three of all time right now, and they're replacing them with a midfield three that could potentially be just as good. So in terms of a long-term kind of perspective, I, I you know, I can't knock the signing. Yeah, it's a lot of money, but it is Real Madrid. They did just win the Champions League and got a lot of income for that. Um, I, I think probably the biggest downside of it is that it could impact what else they do in the window. Cause there are other mm-hmm. positions that they need to be looking at. I, I think they should be trying to look at a, a replacement for Carvajal pretty soon. And they, I don't think they have one in the squad. You know, Lucas Vasquez can do a job at, at right back, but you know, he's not going to be a starting right back level player uh, for Real Madrid who are the biggest club in the world and are still winning trophies. Like it's nothing, So, um, yeah, it's a bit of an overspend, but, you know, I I think he'll be unbelievable for Madrid in the future.
1: Yeah, I I agree. He'll be very, very good. Uh, I just felt like, you know, they didn't get the Mbappe signing over the line and then they were just like, all right, I'll just throw a little extra cash at this one to get it done immediately. That's what it felt like to me. But I'll tell you what, Justin, I'd rather spend 100 mil on Chua Meni than 100 mil on Darwin Nunez. Yeah, I'll agree with that one. And then trying to stay in the Premier League, it is a team coming up to the Premier League, uh, Nottingham Forest and their goalkeeper, Bree Samba, who is leaving this summer after, you know, taking them up. I mean, he was absolutely incredible. But to me, this is shocking, but it's, it's also provides an opportunity for U.S. men's national team goalkeeper, Ethan Horvath. Uh, if they are if they don't replace him, Horvath becomes a starter in the Premier League. After we know, you know, the U.S. has three uh, keepers in the Premier League, but they're all backups. He can finally be a starter.
0: Yeah, I mean, I just don't really understand why Bree Samba is doing this. He's only 28 years old. He could have, you know, if Forrest do well, he he could be playing in the Premier League for years, and and that would be by far the pinnacle of his career. Um, And the Athletic report that it's not a financial decision, like he's not doing it because of finances, but rather, quote, that it is motivated by his respect for his achievements, importance and popularity at the city ground. I I don't understand that. So basically, you're just quitting while you're ahead. You're like, oh, I'm at the top of the world. I'm a forest legend. So here, let me not risk not playing that well next season i'm just gonna leave
1: instead i mean it's it's baffling yeah yeah really doesn't make much sense uh a couple other signings uh first is arsenal with uh marquinhos you you looked at it and you thought marquinhos No, no no not that marquinhos uh but is it a good signing for arsenal or how do you feel about this one I mean, I'd be lying if I said
0: I knew a lot about this player, Um, but they've had reasonable success with, with getting players out of Brazil. I mean, it it kind of feels very reminiscent of the Gabriel Martinelli signing, which thus far I think has, has worked out pretty well. And, and, you know, obviously that's a player who has a lot of potential, a very high ceiling. We'll see if he reaches it, but, you know, I mean, it's not surprising edu is still you know the director of football so you know of course they're going to be going and picking out talent out of brazil so um yeah i i would be lying if i said i know much about the player but it's not a move that's particularly surprising you know there's a lot of talent in in brazil in the brazilian league especially you know with wingers so yeah it makes sense and you know could end up being a fantastic signing for them
1: yeah absolutely Uh, And it's only three and a half million euros, I believe. So very small amount of money. And so there's just a ton of upside and very little downside is how I view it. And it obviously fits into what Arsenal have been doing, trying to sign young players, as you said, very similar to Martinelli. Uh, He's only 19 years old, Brazilian, uh, brings the flair and fits into Arsenal's young system. Arteta wants young players. They had one of the youngest starting elevens in the league this season. And so it just fits in that and and you know, it's a rebuild for Arsenal and so Arsenal fans have been struggling these past few years because they don't like that that's not the the Arsenal they're used to, but it takes a few years and this is part of the process and I think it's getting there. It's low risk, high reward and you know, even if he
0: doesn't turn out to be what they want him to be and, and isn't good enough to get into the starting 11 which is going to be a very big ask considering the talent that they have they'll probably end up selling him for a profit anyway so yeah it's a it's a smart move from arsenal
1: and then garrett your club brought in a center back this week didn't they
0: yeah james Tarkowski on a free from burnley Hasn't officially been announced yet, but the medical is complete. He's back on holiday now. So, you know, it's just a matter of when Everton decide to announce it. Um, Personally, there's a lot of rumors about what the wage is and, and that will kind of impact my view on the transfer, but it is a needs must signing. It is a very pragmatic signing because we need consistency at the back with Yeri Mina being injured all the time. Ben Godfrey uh, suffered the effects of long COVID and was nowhere near as good this season as he was last year. We can't afford to have Michael Keene and Mason Holgate starting every game at center back. James Sarkoski has played 35, 38, 35 games in the last like three seasons in the prem. So he is consistency. He is the, epitome of consistency um, and on a free it addresses one of the biggest needs we had in the summer so overall i'm happy with the deal i just hope that we're not paying him way too much and that he you know ends up not being good enough and then just sitting for two years and racking up a, a really high wage a la chank and, and
1: yannick balassi yeah absolutely center back something that everton needed uh premier league very experienced center back there hopefully that will work out well for them And then another defender, uh, Andreas Christensen, from Chelsea to Barcelona, following his uh, teammate, Aspelicueta and Rudiger, really, who went to Madrid. You know, all three of them going from Chelsea to one of the biggest clubs uh, in Spain. Uh, I mean, the entire back line of Chelsea is basically being torn apart. They're going to have to rebuild it. They keep uh, Reese James, basically, is the only real starter that they're going to keep. I think they'll probably bring in Jules Koundé. We'll see. Uh, but other than that, yeah, not sure there. And then um, a couple US related transfers were Chris Armis, uh, the manager who, you know, Red Bull's history. And then he was at Manchester United with Ralph Ragnick for a little bit last season. He will now join Jesse Marsh at Leeds, uh, building a little bit of a USAFC over there, it seems. Of course, they just signed Brendan Aronson. Uh, so we love to see that. Um, and then Cameron Carter Vickers went to Celtic permanently of course the U.S. Men's National Team International Uh, he was on loan at Celtic last season 33 appearances Uh, they liked what they saw and so they decided to sign him permanently yeah um, I I like this move for Cameron Carter Vickers he's been
0: kind of a forgotten man like I honestly kind of forgot that he was in the USMNT fold until relatively recently, you know, was at Spurs for a while and just never got any game time, but had a really good season at Celtic. They obviously won the, the league this year, reclaiming it um, from Rangers. So yeah, I'm glad to see him getting some more game time and with the Miles Robinson injury and, Uh, John Brooks being out of favor there's definitely a a chance for him to really break into the USMNT lineup so this is a good move for him and it's a good move for the USMNT
1: yep and then the the last big news not necessarily transfer but again with coaches or front office really it was Luis Campos uh, being appointed the new PSG football advisor
0: yeah. We talked about this when we were talking about the implications of the Mbappe deal. Cause this is someone that Mbappe has a, a previous relationship with when they were both at Monaco. Um, and so, you know, this wasn't official until now it's now set. I think it will probably work out um, even though it's, it seems to be very much a, an Mbappe influenced decision. Um, but, you know, Luis Campos at Monaco, they've had a lot of success picking out talent. I mean, that, I think it was 2017-18 Monaco team with Mbappe, Bernardo Silva. That team was insane. So, you know, it's interesting. We'll see how this works out. I guess he's not, you know, as the director of football, he's just an advisor, but it, this is, you know, has the fingerprints of Mbappe all over it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it, uh, it makes you think that, okay, this is why they're not, in, they're not trying to get Mourinho anymore and they want Zidane is, is Luis Campos. It feels this way, that, that way to me. Uh, and then, Garrett, we can end with our moments of the week. I will start to – mine came today, uh, very early on today, actually. Uh, basically, last night, I stayed up all night until 2 a.m. our time uh, when Erling Holland was finally announced. For Manchester City as as the new Manchester City player. Um, The announcement was amazing. It was, you know, him replicating his childhood photo with wearing a Manchester City shirt. And now he's replicating it today in the new kit. Uh, And he also talked about how he had has been a Manchester City fan his whole life. So a a big moment for any Manchester City fan hearing that from him. and, And that was my moment of the week. And mine comes from early this morning as well,
0: Justin, where Real Madrid, after winning their 14th Champions League, officially said goodbye to their captain, Mr. Marcelo from Brazil. Incredible, incredible career at the club for him. He has said that he's not done yet, um, but he leaves Real Madrid with 25 major titles, which is just incredible and means that he is the most decorated player in the history of the most decorated club So, you know, just unbelievable from him and got the send up that he deserved. I mean, took a picture with Florentino Perez with all of the trophies lined up in front of him. And it's just staggering to see. So be interesting to see where he ends up landing, maybe going back to Brazil this summer. Um, But, you know, just an incredible career. And he should he deserves his plaudits for that just remarkable success at Real Madrid. And with that, Justin, that brings this episode to a close. Thank you all for listening. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at U90Football and on Instagram at U90FootballPod. That's U90 in both. Um, We will be back next week with another episode, hopefully with some listener questions returning to the pod. So those will be fun to go through and answer. So we will see you then. Have a great rest of your week.